We're turning to Malachi, to chapter 3, and this is our sixth study this evening. And we have looked at several subjects thus far. We've looked at Malachi's message on love in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1. We've looked at his message on service from verse 6 through to 14. And we looked in chapter 2, verse 1 to 9, at his message on discipline and the judgment that the priests incurred because of their transgressing of the covenant of Levi. And then in chapter 2, verse 10 to 16, we looked at his message on marriage and how there was an unequal yoke with many of them. And some of them were divorcing their Hebrew wives of their youth to marry the wives of uh, the daughters of pagan gods. And then our last study in chapter 2, verse 17 through to chapter 3, verse 6, we looked at his message on Messiah. How the people of God and Judah were crying out for a deliverer. They were looking for a Messiah, but they didn't realize that when Messiah came, that he would come in judgment. And of course, when Messiah came the first time, they didn't even recognize him. But the Lord Jesus Christ, these verses, particularly pointing to his second advent, will come again, but he will come to judge the world. Not only will he judge the world and Judah's enemies and the Gentiles, but what they failed to realize was that he would also come to judge them. Now tonight our study takes us to verse 7 through to verse 12 in the will of the Lord. And Malachi's message this evening to us is the message that he gives on stewardship. Malachi's modern message on stewardship. So we begin our reading at chapter 3 and verse 7. Malachi says, remember verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. That there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed. For ye shall be a delightsome man, saith the Lord of hosts. Malachi's modern message on love was that he loved his people deeply. But of course the people doubted him. Wherein have you loved us? And he had to prove to them in chapter 1, of course, as we have learned, that he loved them from even before the beginning of time, that they were chosen, not for good in them, but by grace. They were chosen not because they were great in number or strength, but because he loved them. 
But yet in their service to him, they began to serve in drudgery. They believed it was a vain thing to serve the Lord. The offerings that they were bringing were defective and defiled. They were bringing the lame lambs and the blind beasts to offer to the Lord. There was this attitude that prevailed. Anything will do for the Lord. For what does it matter anyway? The wicked are prevailing and the righteous are suffering. So what does it matter how we serve the Lord? God brought this message through Malachi about service and the service that God required. He had given the Levites his best. And he expects nothing less than his best from those who serve him. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 9, the end the message came in discipline. How the Lord would judge those Levitical priests. How he would actually smear the dung of their offerings upon their faces because they had defiled the name of the Lord. He would defile them. Then his message on marriage, as we've alluded to already, the unequal yoke and how important it is that even in this day and age that we make sure that we don't fall into that satanic trap. Then there was the issue of how God spoke that he hated divorce. And in this specific instant, how they were divorcing their Jewish wives, that they had entered into covenant before God and with their wives in their youth. Yet they divorced them to marry the daughters of pagan gods, and they had seduced them to follow those gods in idolatry. And then we saw how they were complacent to think that their Messiah would come and deliver them. And they had forgotten to realize that the Messiah was going to come as a refiner's fire and judge them along with the nations. But tonight we're looking at his modern message on stewardship. Now before we go on any further, need I ask the question if we've realized already that Malachi does have a modern message to the world in which we live you would think as we read down all these messages that he's already preached that he was compiling a top ten list of problems among God's people today. Things that, and issues that we're all struggling with in this world. You'd think almost he was writing to the year 2005 rather than writing 2,500 years ago. The simple message of Malachi, if you could sum it up in any shape or form, I have found at least is this. Not only is God an unchangeable God, as we find in chapter 3 and verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. But the human condition has not changed either. In fact, in verse 6 of chapter 3, if you look at it where it says, Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The Hebrew literally reads, For I, the Lord, do not change, and you sons of Jacob have not ceased. The authorized version translates it correctly. Uh, Therefore ye are not consumed. But there is a sense in which this verse can mean, You too have not ceased to be the sons of Jacob. I am the Lord, I change not. But you sons of Jacob have not ceased being the sons of Jacob. In other words, being a wayward people. Because, of course, that's what Jacob meant. Sojourner, supplanter, one who is a twister. And isn't it so true, as we've looked at the issues that God's people grappled with 2,500 years ago, that these are the same issues that God's people are grappling with in 2005? Because not only does God not change, and the standards that God requires of men does not change, but the human nature, the depraved, Adamic, fallen nature of the whole race has not changed either. The Jews, it's sad to say, have not changed. 
And when their Messiah came in the first century, they would not change. When the apostles preached the gospel, they would not change. And up to this present modern day, they have not changed. Praise God, a remnant will be changed on a future day. But even Stephen had to say after their deliverer had come, as he preached that great sermon before his martyrdom in Acts 7, 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. That was the history of their people. They continually resisted God's command. And this is exactly what Malachi echoes in verse 7. If you look at it, even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. You have disobeyed my laws. And even in this present age, God's people in the church of Jesus Christ struggle with the issues that confronted Judah. The problems have never seemed to change. And the sad fact is God's people find it harder to change those problems today than they have ever done. And so far from being an antiquated historical piece of literature, this book of Malachi we have found to be a treasure trove of practical truths. As contemporary and convicting as it was all those years ago. And the clarion call of God is the same tonight as it has ever been in verse 7, the second half. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. That was the cry of the God of Israel to his people all through the Old Testament. It is still his cry to the people of Israel today, and it is cry to his church in this age that is probably going to usher in the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Return unto me. Return unto me. And I will return unto you. The trouble was Israel could not see their need of God. As far as they were concerned, they had not left God. And God had not left them, though it felt like it at times. And that is the reason why they answer again, as they have been prone to do in this discourse, wherein shall we return, verse 7, the very end. Wherein? Why do we need to return, Lord? What are you talking about? We haven't left. You haven't left. And I think this highlights one of the greatest problems that a child of God can ever have. And I don't think there's anything worse than this particular problem is the problem of spiritual delusion. Spiritual delusion. There are many ailments that the church of Jesus Christ suffers from today, but I believe that it is a spiritual ailment that affects the church today. Delusion. And it's been almost unavoidable for me as I've gone through this study to see the blatant parallels between the people of Judah here in Malachi's day and the church of Jesus Christ just before the second advent of our Lord. In other words, the church of Laodicea that we find in Revelation in chapter 3. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn with me to Revelation 3. We'll not read the whole account of the church of Laodicea, but you know that because they were neither hot nor cold, the Lord was going to spew them out of his mouth, being lukewarm. In other words, 
That type of indifference and apathy, spiritually speaking, makes the Lord Jesus sick. And then in verse 17, he gives the reasoning and rationale for his rejection and expulsion of them. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And thou knowest not, there's the delusion, thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I chasten and rebuke. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. He accuses Laodicea of not only being lukewarm, being indifferent and apathetic spiritually, and being deluded, but being blind, having spiritual myopia, short-sightedness, or if you like, not being able to focus regarding their true spiritual condition before God. They didn't see themselves the way they really were. They didn't see themselves the way the Son of God saw them. They were deluded. And because of that, even though the Lord Jesus told them to repent, they felt little need to repent. What do I need to repent of? When you talk to Christians in the day and age we live, we find the same result. Many Christians feel that repentance is something you did the night that you were born again. And once you do it then, that's the end of it. Well, that's not a New Testament Christianity, if that's what you believe. The Lord Jesus taught us to take up our cross daily. That's repentance. And follow him. Denying ourselves and following Christ. And one of the greatest problems of the church today, and the reason we're in the lukewarm, deluded position we are, is that we don't repent every day of our lives. A.W. Tozer, that great preacher and writer, said that we're in the predicament that we are as a church because ignoble contentment has taken the place of burning zeal. He goes on to say, we are satisfied to rest in our judicial possession. And for the most part, we bother ourselves very little about the absence of personal experience. In other words, we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We know what our standing is. But what are we experientially before God? Do we experience the blessings that we ought to have in Christ? Or have we lost the zeal and has it given place to ignoble contentment? We're a bit like the bus conductor who's called out the destination that many times that he thinks he's been there. We know the verses. We know the expressions. We know the doctrine. 
We know them perhaps inside out and we know when others go wrong regarding them. But there is a possibility that just like the Levitical priests and the whole Judaic nation in Malachi's day, we have a form of godliness, but there is no power. They were engaged in the rituals, the practices, the ceremonies of the temple and the sacrifice and so on. But the God of power was not there and they knew it. Even though they were in an awful state, God still displayed his unchangeable graciousness. And isn't it wonderful that no matter how far Israel seems to go in their depravity and rebellion and backsliding, God is there again and again and again saying, Return unto me, return unto me, and I will return unto you. The tragedy is that no matter how much he cries again and again and again, return, they feel over and over again and again to return. But I'm asking you tonight, in the light of this modern message to us, do you hear the Lord's voice to return? It may be a voice crying in the wilderness, I believe it is, in the day and age in which we live, yet nevertheless, I am crying to you tonight, I believe on God's behalf on the authority of his word and inviting you to return unto the Lord and he will return unto you. Are you a backslider tonight? Are you cold in heart and zeal towards the Lord? Are you indifferent to spiritual realities, to the prospect of eternity, to the knowledge of what will happen to those around you who are unconverted. I'm saying to you tonight exactly what Malachi said all those years ago. Let us search and try our ways and turn again unto the Lord. Now if you're here tonight and you don't feel any need of repentance. You're in the same sorry predicament as Judah was. You're sitting there tonight as I'm crying this clarion call, repent, return. And you're saying, wherein shall we return? Wherein shall we repent? What are you talking about? Well, can I exhort you to beware? Because you know what happens when we challenge God to show us where we need to change? He hits us where it hurts. If you like the Judeans come to God after he has implored you to repent and return to him. And you say, wherein shall we return? God will hit you where it hurts. And that can be seen in the next cry that comes from God. The first cry in this passage is that of return. And the second cry is that of robbery. Wherein shall we return? And God tells them, verse 8, Will a man rob God, yet ye have robbed me? Robbery. That's where you ought to repent. That's where you ought to return. The Hebrew word rob here occurs only one other occasion in the whole of the, the Bible in Proverbs 22, 22. And it means to defraud. And the verb is used often in Talmudic Jewish literature and means to take 
forcibly. Imagine this. God is saying, here's where you need to repent and return. Ye have defrauded me. You have taken forcibly what is mine. Therein do you need to repent. What is the old prophet getting at? Harrington C. Lees once wrote these words, and I want you to listen to them very carefully, for they are very perceptive. The most sensitive part of civilized man is his pocket. And one of the fiercest fights a preacher has to wage is when his preaching touches the pockets of his hearers. Malachi comes and he touches their pockets. You have robbed me, God says. Malachi comes and touches their pockets because he wants to make their repentance costly. And he wants to make their repentance costly because he wants their repentance to be genuine. Can I say this categorically in the authority of the whole of Scripture? That if your repentance doesn't cost you anything, it's worth nothing. In fact, if your Christian life hasn't cost you anything, it's debatable whether you're saved at all. They're giving was deplorable. Not only were they giving defective gifts and animals, the blind and the lame and the blemish, but they were actually not giving what they ought to give. And God is coming and he says, look, if you want to know wherein you ought to repent and return, here's a good guideline for me to know that you've done it. Stop robbing me and pay back what you owe me. Your giving will be a guide to your repentance. Now why should that be? Well simply for one reason. Their giving could be measured. I can't see into your heart. Thank God you can't see into mine. But the fact of the matter is. That makes it easy for many of us. I don't know if you had a quiet time this morning. I don't know how long you prayed. I don't know how many people you have spoken to. For the Lord today. But the fact of the matter is, in the, the Jewish people in this age, God would know very clearly and the temple would know if the people were giving to the ministry of the temple. It could be measured. And therefore, the repentance was measured by their giving. Now, you've heard it said, I think it was Mary McShane, that a man is what he is on his knees and no more. But in the context of this portion of scripture, I would like to change that to say a Christian is what he gives and no more. For your giving is a barometer of your spiritual health. And here is a man, Malachi, just like the Savior himself, who's not afraid to preach against the dangers of hoarding money personally for yourself. Neither is he afraid of preaching that money of God's people ought to be dedicated and devoted to God's service. Now their reaction was as predictable as people's reaction today. They didn't like it because their wallets were too close to their heart. And they say, wherein have we robbed thee? You see it? Verse 8 again. They question God. 
wherein have we robbed thee? And God comes back with lightning pace in tithes and in offerings. You want to know? I'll tell you. Now, most people assume that the tithe in the Old Testament was a 10% of the people's income. And that is a woeful misconception. Because there were multiple mandatory requirements of the Old Testament people of God. Now, the one that is spoken of here in this verse is the Lord's tithe. That was the fact that the Levites in Numbers 18 were to be supported in their priestly ministry by the people of God. They were to submit supplies in order to help the ministry of the priests. It was also called the Levites' tithe. And people would tithe of their animals, of their crops, of their produce. And that is what is spoken of specifically here in Malachi 3 and verse 8, this Lord's tithe. They were withholding it. But there were other tithes. Don't you think for one moment that Old Testament saints only had to give a tenth of everything they had? There was another tithe. There was the festival tithe that you read of in Deuteronomy 12. That was often taken uh, when there were great festivals and after they had conquered the promised land. There was to be annual festivals to celebrate that great event. And that was another tithe. So that's now a mandatory 20%. The Lord's tithe, 10. The festival tithe, 10. And then there was another tithe, the poor tithe, that we read of in Deuteronomy 14. That was for social welfare, to help the poor, the widows in society. And that was taken every three years, not every year, every three years. You divide 10 by 3, roughly about... 3.3, that means 3.3% per annum was given to this poor tithe. Add it all up. 10% for the Levites, the Lord's tithe. 10% for the festival tithe. 3.3% per annum for this poor tithe. And that is 23% per year per person of their income. And that's not where it ended. For in Leviticus 19... You were to add to that the fact that you were to refrain from harvesting the corners of the field. If you were a farmer, you weren't allowed to harvest the corner. If you were a husbandman, you weren't allowed to pluck all the grapes in the vineyard. You were to leave some of them just in case poor people could come by and glean food for themselves. And in addition to that, there were other taxes from time to time, such as a tax of a third of a shekel, that later had to be paid for the materials of the temple that we read of in Nehemiah 10. Now what am I telling you all this for? Get it out of your head that the Jewish people only gave to the Lord one-tenth. The bottom line is, at a bare minimum, everyone was required to give 25% of their income. And added to that, there was what was called free will offerings. The first fruits. If you love the Lord enough, you would give the best of your crop and the best of your farm to the Lord. There were other free will offerings. When Moses built the tabernacle in Exodus 25, the people were invited by God to bring all they could. And in Exodus 36, we read that there was so much brought by the people that Moses had asked them to stop. They were bringing too much. Now, what had happened here in Malachi's day, you may ask? Well, obviously, they'd stopped bringing the Lord's tithe. But in all probability, they had decreased their tithes and their offerings because of the adverse conditions that prevailed. What am I talking about? 
Well, they seem to try and justify that they were not bringing this Levitical tithe because the crops were failing and they didn't have hardly enough crops to live themselves. So how could they be expected to bring that tithe to the temple? There was a drought. There was a pestilence. That's what we read of in verse 10 and in verse 11. But the Lord reveals to them, yes, there are natural disasters. And yes, you're not as well off as you ought to be. But those natural disasters are the the result of your disobedience. Those natural disasters are not the cause of your disobedience. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn to Haggai chapter 1. This crop failure, drought, and pestilence are the result of their disobedience before God and not the cause of the nation's disobedience. Verse 9 of chapter 1, the same epoch, the same conditions prevail. Haggai 9 of chapter 1, Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little, and when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stead from dew, and the earth is stead from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. And look back to verse 6. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you. But there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. And what does God say to them? What is God saying to them? Verse 7. Therefore, saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 5. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. These natural disasters are the result of your disobedience, not a reason to be disobedient. He's saying what he said in Malachi 2 and verse 2 to them. Because you have despised me, because you have dishonored my name, I have cursed your blessings. God had shut the rain off. God had spoiled the crops all because of the people's selfishness. Yet they used that as an excuse not to give to God. They didn't realize that if they would only give to God, God would give back to them. If they returned unto God, he would return unto them. They didn't realize that not only were they robbing God by not giving their offerings, but they were robbing themselves. Someone has said, and I think said well, if God's larders are empty, his people are to blame. If God's larders are empty, his people are to blame. 
And Malachi's modern message is the same today as it was then. And it's simply this. God has promised to bless and care for those who are faithful in their stewardship toward him. You not believe me? Well, turn with me to Philippians 4 for a moment. Paul talks of his own experience of how kind the church at Philippi were to him. Philippians 4 and verse 10. <coughs> I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere, and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction, now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye alone. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul is saying? Because of your faithfulness in providing my need in the gospel, God will reciprocate that. And bless you for blessing me. And God will supply all your need. According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now let us gather in these lessons. These modern contemporary lessons for us tonight. And ask a very sobering question of ourselves. First of all. The obvious answer to the first one is given. Can God be robbed? Categorically yes. Can we rob him? Would we not be very inconsistent if we were to answer no to the second question? William MacDonald has made this very piercing statement regarding the lack of stewardship in the Church of Jesus Christ today. We rob God in this sense. Oftentimes the Lord's own money is not available to him. Imagine and contemplate the possibility that God's own money is not available to him because the Christians of Malachi's and today's day are so tight-fisted that they won't let go of it and allow him to use it. This is the principle of stewardship. And please do not misunderstand what I'm saying tonight as an appeal to the building fund. It is not. I'm preaching in God's word consecutively. And don't you dare accuse me of doing anything else. I haven't got the privilege of skipping over verses. I have to answer the question before God rather than you. Can a man rob God? Can I rob God? Can you rob God? And the answer is yes. 
In fact, I would go as far to say the average child of God in this generation is robbing God. I was only able to find statistics for the United States, but they'll do when we consider the United States is the, the biggest evangelical Christian nation in the world and also, in parallel, the most wealthy nation in the world. In 1969, the average church member in the United States gave 3.1% less than his tithe. 3.1% income less, that is less than a third of the tithe. That figure dropped every year until 1990. In 1990, and then it recovered slightly to 2.66%. That's approximately a quarter of a tithe. In 1990, the average American Christian was giving less than a quarter of a tithe. And this statistician, who is a Christian, observed the trend over the years from 68 until 1990. As the Christians in America got richer and richer, evangelicals chose to spend more and more on themselves and give less and less, a smaller percentage, to the church. Now isn't that interesting? Why, you might say? Well, the reason why God was reprimanding his Old Testament people was because they thought they had just reasons for withholding the tithe. There was a famine, there was a drought, there was a pestilence. Yet God's people today, as they increase in affluence, think it is just to hold back more and more from God's work. If God had reason to judge them, has he not reason to judge us this evening? Today, on average, evangelicals in the United States today give about two-fifths of a tithe. Two-fifths of a tithe. In 2002, a Barna poll was, was taken and it was discovered, listen to this now, that 6% of born-again adults tithed. From the year 2000, now wait for this, to the year 2002, there was a 50% reduction and decline. In 2012% of evangelicals in America tithe. And in two years, it was cut by half to 6%. And there is more money spent in the United States to feed and to care for their pets than is given to churches and charities, the wealthiest nation. The most Christian nation, so-called. And I say to all of us tonight, the divine message remains unchanged. Ye have robbed me, saith the Lord. The New Testament teaches us, and I haven't time to go into this, but I have ministered on it in the recent past, that believers in Christ are not required to give a tithe necessarily, although that may be a good starting point. But believers are to give sacrificially. They are to give systematically on the first day of the week. They are to give liberally. They are to give cheerfully, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And they are to give as the Lord has prospered them. That is proportionately to the wealth that God has given them. 
And although no tithing is mentioned in a commendatory sense in the New Testament scripture, the suggestion that we have in principle in the New Testament is that if the Jew was living, giving a tithe and several tithes under the law, how much more ought the child of God to give under grace? The reward in the Old Testament for faithful tithing was the blessing of material wealth. And though there may come a certain amount of reciprocation, as the man said, we give a spoonful and God gives us back a shovel spoonful. The spiritual blessings are the main ones that we get today when we give in our stewardship sacrificially, systematically, liberally, cheerfully, and proportionately to the Lord. But there's an important spiritual principle here that's enumerated in Malachi that's applicable to every age. And it's simply this. God meets with blessing any heart of any man, woman, boy or girl that is completely devoted to him. And if you want God's storehouse to be open to you, you need to open your storehouse to God. Just as simple as that. And it's not all about money. It's about time. Giving your time to God. You can rob God of your time in the morning and in the evening and on the Lord's day. You can rob God of your energy. You can rob God of your intellect. You can rob God of your talent. You can rob God of your possessions, whether it's your home or whether it's your car, whatever it may be. And the simple message of Malachi is that the pathway to blessing is always obedience. You want to be blessed, God says to his ancient people, Judah. Here's the way to do it. Return unto me. Stop robbing me. And gather all the tithes and the offerings into the storehouse. And I will open my storehouse in heaven. And pour you out a blessing to exhaustion. Not what verse 10 says. They had been questioning God. Hadn't they? Over and over again. Lord prove it. Wherein do you love us? Wherein have we robbed you? And now God is saying, it's now your turn to prove me. Prove me not to be unfaithful as you accuse me of, but prove me to be faithful. Try me, test me, and see when you bring all your tithes in, if I will not pour you out a blessing until there is a failure of sufficiency. That's literally what it means. Until you haven't room to receive. Now this is mind-boggling because this is the eternal God. As you know, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine, the heavens and the earth, or heads and everything in it. Yet he is saying, I will reciprocate your blessing to such an extent that it will be almost as if I have exhausted the resources of heaven to give you the blessing. God is challenging the people to try and exhaust him with their giving. He's saying, I will give over proportionately to everything that you do. The first cry has been returned. And then the next cry was robbery. 
But if you want the blessing, the cry that comes is you will be rewarded if you repent. God's word does not change. He who soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he who soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. And God told them if they would do this, verse 11, the pestilence would be removed. Verse 12, they would be restored to prominence one day that will be fully fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ when they will be called again a delightsome land and the land will bring forth plentifully. I'm asking you a question tonight. And I'm asking myself this question. Are we as Christians in the 21st century failing to obey the elementary commands that the Lord Jesus Christ has left us regarding stewardship? What am I talking about? Listen to these words, his word. Give, and it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye measure, it shall be measured to you again. Another. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Could it possibly be that our spiritual blessings could be turned into cursings because we don't do stewardship right? Please do not dispensationalize the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to suit your checkbook. These teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ are either expected of us or they are not and he even goes as far to say in this parable of Luke chapter 16. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous money. The money that's in your pocket. Who will commit to you the trust of the true riches? God requires of us that we turn our money into Bibles. God requires of us that we turn our money into testaments and scripture portions and tracts and other Christian literature. He requires that money is used to support missionaries and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He asks that money would be used to finance Christian radio to preach the word of God all over the world and many more worthy endeavors and activities. In short... What Christ is telling us and Malachi is telling us and the Holy Spirit is saying to us all this evening, if you use your money for the spread of the gospel in any or every way, it will not be lost. Someone has put it, the only way we can lay up our treasures in heaven is to put them into something that is going there. putting your money into something that's going there. Dr. Adam Clark preached on the text on one occasion, whosoever will let him take the water of life freely from Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And 
had the conclusion of the meeting, he announced an offering, and afterwards a lady asked, how can you reconcile the freeness of the water of life with the collection of the clothes? Oh, madam, he answered, God gives the water without money and without price, but you must pay for the waterworks, for the pipes and the pitchers to convey the water. Can I say something to you from my heart tonight? Don't insult God by asking why the gospel is not blessed in your church if you're not willing to reach into your pocket to bless it. I read a poem that is searing, and I finish with it. It's called A Dollar to God. 3000 for my brand new car, 5000 for a piece of sod, 10000 I paid to begin a house, a dollar I gave to God. A tidy sum to entertain my friends and chatter, and when the world goes crazy mad, I ask, Lord, what's the matter? A dollar I gave to God. Yet there is one big question for the answer I still search. With things so bad in this old world, what's holding back my church? Are you robbing God? Let us search our hearts. Whatever assembly you belong to, I don't care. Do you give? When was the last time you gave to missionary endeavor when there are millions dying without Christ and have never heard his name? You're not robbing a church. You're not robbing a missionary society. You're robbing God. Father, forgive us. Forgive me. When I live for self and the service of the king suffers and souls that will never die enter into eternity for want of a piece of paper with a verse upon it. Oh God, move us, revive us to follow in our Savior's footsteps the one who had no place to lay his head. Oh, God, help us to forsake all and follow him. And may we put all that we are and have into the storehouse of God, that thou mayest open thy windows and pour us out a blessing, O oh God, that we would not have room to receive it. Oh, have mercy upon us. And hear our cry in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.